The next chapter with Prim's Ripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is not only a former ESPN colleague of mine, but someone who has become a dear friend over the years, someone I respect and adore. Although it took me some time to really get to know her convincingly strong and opinionated ways, which we will unpack in this interview. She was a three-sport athlete at Lake Forest High School in Illinois and also a Division I heptathlete at Cornell. Today, she's a writer, a journalist, a TV and radio personality for ESPN. I'm sure many of you have seen or heard her, and she appears on various shows, including Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, as well as Around the Horn. She is also the host of the That's What She Said podcast, a co-owner of the Chicago Red Stars, the pro women's soccer club, a fan of all Chicago sports, a fellow advocate of the Adopt Don't Shop campaign, just like we are, also a fellow mama of pit bulls, also, although she has three of them, we only have one. And similar to our friend, Michael Lee Jr., she is also a fantastic wedding guest who is unafraid to liven the party. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome in Sarah Spain, a.k.a. The Assassinator. It's so good to see you. Actually, we, we caught up last week. We've, yeah. we've been in touch, um, but it's so good to finally have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. And I love these interviews because as, as Mike Golick Jr. and I kind of talked about, I feel like the podcast format and also being in just media, it allows us to have conversations with friends in a way that we maybe wouldn't sitting at a bar or sitting, hanging out with each other. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I actually had a handful of colleagues on my podcast. Uh, one of the ones that I was just thinking about the other day, I asked them about their like work process and it's the kind of stuff I might ask them, but like not have the focus to really get to the nitty gritty of it. Just sort of offhandedly. Oh yeah. Mina, like when you're prepping for, for NFL live or an upcoming NFL season, what do you do kind of thing? And I can't remember how many, I think it was four folks. And I just was like very curious. And I thought other people would be intrigued by the work that you put into say calling a game versus doing an, you know, an analyst gig on a show versus a radio show, all that stuff. So I agree. It's like, I'm a very nosy, curious person. I'm always <laughs> wanting to like learn. And so getting a full hour with people from like either colleagues or any other industry to just be able to ask anything I want within reason, uh, is like literally the whole point of having a podcast <laughs> within, like... within reason. I feel like that's not something that comes out of your, out of your mouth too often. Right. You... Well, <laughs> so one of the things I'm trying to figure out, and one of the reasons I've always said that I don't think I would be very good at being like a breaking news person is that I have a tremendous amount of like empathy and I feel genuinely bad if anything I do makes other people mm. like sad or embarrassed or not bad people. I think you recognize that I'm, I have no shame or worries about calling people out for <laughs> racism, misogyny, harassment, like things like that. But I mean, like for an athlete, um, I think I would have a lot of trouble like 
revealing that they that they have have PED issues and then they get suspended, even if that's the job and I respect the job, that's very hard for me. And so sometimes in interviews, I stay away from the very topic that I as a journalist should be digging into because I can't decide if I want to make them uncomfortable. Right. So like I do it for the most part, but sometimes I'm aware that I let them off the hook when mm-hmm. I should be diving in deeper. Um, and that's something I'm kind of, I'm kind of working on. That's so interesting to hear you say that because I think from, from my side of things, and this is something I hope we get to, I I want to learn more about your process as you were asking other people about your process. I'm curious about your process, especially your, your process over the past, not only just several years, but as you transition from sport and also how your childhood and upbringing has really influenced who you've become today. But it's so interesting to hear that your empathy sometimes get in the way because oftentimes I feel like there's so many people, including myself, that says, wow, I wish I had the gumption and the confidence (laughs) that Spain has like that. You're like, you're not afraid to just zap somebody and zing somebody where they need to be zinged. Um, So it's just interesting to hear you talk about it in that, in that way. They deserve it though. I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? (laughs) There's a difference between a harmless clap back to a Twitter troll that I use to sort of get that intro, that message or that joke out to everybody. Sometimes it is a message like this is a dumb opinion. People keep repeating it. I'm just going to pick this one person and shout them down and show everyone why their opinion is wrong. Or sometimes it's just this person's being a a, a jackass. So I'm going to clap back in a way that makes people laugh and makes me laugh. So I'm not just digesting (laughs) hate all day without being allowed to respond. Those are sort of like little things. I, I think I'm not afraid of calling people out. I'm not afraid of fighting for what's fair and right. So I think that's the issue is if the pursuit of making things more fair, more equal, more right, calling people out for behaviors that are damaging and dangerous and unequal and are making other people's lives worse, then my empathy is for the people that they're affecting and I have no problem calling them out. If mm-hmm. it's salacious or not in pursuit of a larger goal. If it's merely, this is the thing people want to hear about. Let's get really juicy into your divorce or the photos that got leaked or, you know what I mean? If it's not Mm -hmm. in pursuit of a greater goal, it's just because I know that that's the juicy thing people want to hear about. I get uncomfortable making Mm -hmm. somebody else feel bad for like clicks. You know what I mean? In -hmm. fact, I had a guest on my podcast and I won't say who, because I said after the fact, no worries, I'll take it out, who came out and and hasn't publicly spoken about it. There have been hints, kind of. And um, when I asked a question, the person answered directly. And I was like, whoa, uh, oh, I don't think this like person has mentioned that they were bi. Wow. And I was very proud that I had made this space to talk about it. And I thought we had a really good conversation about it and then moved on. And of course, after the fact, the rep came back and was like, you know, this person really hasn't talked about this publicly. They're not exactly saying that it's not true, but they're also not really addressing it. So if you could take it out, like most people would be like, sorry, that's not our journalistic Mm. practice here. We don't let you decide beforehand what's in the interview. And we certainly don't let you edit after. But I'm not going to do that to someone who wasn't in a position or ready to have that conversation publicly. Um, So I think that's an example. That wasn't for the greater good. That person will figure out when the time is right for that. 
Um, and so I think that's where the line is on my empathy. It's like, I've been, I've been, uh, reading Mike Schur's book, how to be perfect. Uh, the creator of, uh, you know, parks and rec and the good place and everything else. And he's a, he's the first repeat guest on my podcast. And I think uh, it, when you think about the rules that dictate in your mind, what makes you a good person or are you doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. I think that's what ends up sort of being the weight there is like, are more people going to be helped by me calling this person out and being fearless in my pursuit of, of, you know, stopping them from what they're doing or are more people going to be hurt by me? Like, you know, digging up sad things that, that are not ultimately <laughs> going to serve a larger purpose other than like, let me promote this when I promote the pod, you know? Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. You're going to have to have a, a North star. There has to be that goal, that purpose in mind for the greater good. And so, you know, I was thinking about just your, not just your transition from sport and some of the other things that you've endured, like the injuries and, and um, you know, we'll probably touch into, touch into some of those things. But when I look at your overall career, I've, I processed it and synthesized it and envisioned it in a way where there are these kind of like pillars. And I'm curious about how you feel about it, but these pillars or these like foundational elements that make you who you are today. So obviously sports is a part of it. You're not only a, a huge personality, but you're, you're just, you're honestly one of the biggest sports fans that I know <laughs> that is in the seat of a media personality. But then there's also your voice and then and voice can come in, your voice has, comes in so many different ways. It's the written word, it's verbal, radio, um, journalism, all social media as well. Uh, you're one of the few people that I, I actually like follow in the sense, like I'll always get alerts whenever you tweet. Which oh my is, God, I'm sorry. It's a lot of content. No, so, no I'm, I'm, I'm awful I'm at be social thinking, media. But I'm like, be thinking about you next time I'm going to post like the dumbest <laughs> shit ever and be like, no, I'm just going to get an alert for this. But Relax, you're so... Spain. <laughs> but you're so good at it in a way of like doing that delicate balance of like humor, those clapbacks that are so, so admirable and, <laughs> and fun to watch. But then there's also this entertainment side where, you know, your love for comedy, your, your goal of wanting to be on SNL and then this activism. So I kind of like break it apart into all yeah. those different things. Uh, but I want to dive into your voice first. Where did this voice come from. And I'm not talking about just like your tone or rhythm, but you know what I'm talking about. Just that, that motivating need to go out there and speak and oftentimes speak for the voiceless. Well, my literal voice came from node surgery and that's why I sound like this. Uh, I used to have a higher voice. I used to sing actual high soprano Italian arias and such. Uh, so that's where the pivot came to like, ah, good, good radio voice. Um, you know, I have thought about this a lot. Um, both of my parents are lawyers. And whenever people hear that, I think they think of like a very adversarial house, a lot Mm -hmm. of debating. And that's not really the case at all. It was more a house that was led by logic, uh, defend your point, (laughs) right? Like, like the through line was, um, rational and, Mm -hmm. um, my parents are, I would not call activists, although a lot of the work they do falls under it. They're just more, the work that they do every day is important. They do a lot of um, 
probate. So wills, estates, and trusts specifically for people with disabilities. And so in most places, if you leave large sums of money, estate, et cetera, to someone with specific kinds of disabilities, and it's not in a particular kind of trust, the state can actually seize all of that. It, it has to be done in a specific kind of trust with specific you know, language and everything else. So they've spent, um, they have a law practice together um, and they've spent their entire career doing a lot of work, actually passing laws and changing laws in Illinois for better protection of people with disabilities and stuff. So they do a lot of that mm. activism work without being outside with a sign or being on social media or being the kind of like example that you would think of stereotypically for an activist. Um, and so I think that was part of it. And, you know, I had a real opportunity growing up to be a privileged little shit. Um, I grew up in, <laughs> I grew up in Lake Forest. It's about 45 minutes North of Chicago. It is extremely white. It is extremely privileged. I think, you know, like probably three or four people just in my class alone would drive a Hummer to school. Um, you know, if you didn't have a brand new car when you were 16, it was like, Oh, you know, like I got my mom's hand me down, you know, Chevy blazer, <laughs> like we're poor. Right. Um, and it's the kind of place where the main country club in town wouldn't let Michael Jordan in because he was black, like that kind of place. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderful place to grow up in terms of safety and resources and schools. And I, I really loved my time there. But as soon as I left, I kind of was able to look back and be like, oh, the world is full of people who are different and have different experiences and backgrounds. And I think if my parents hadn't tried so hard as we were growing up to not let us get sucked into that, it would have changed the trajectory of who I am. But instead, they made us go with them and work at soup kitchens. Mm -hmm. um, they were really active in trying to get us out to see different places and culture. And like, um, you know, I think that was part of it was making sure that we recognized that we were very lucky and privileged and to not take it for granted, to be extremely grateful and also to decide that that meant that we sort of had a responsibility to give back and to look around and see where we could be of service. And mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a combination of growing up and recognizing pretty early what it is to have white privilege, what it is to have actual like fiscal privilege and to be mad when I discovered later in life how unfair things were. Because I think mm. you can grow up in a bubble and not recognize that. And I did have, I do have moments where I look back and cringe where I was like, well, I'm not afraid of police because I don't do things that are illegal. Right. And then you look back and you're like, what a dumbass. Like, that's not what's <laughs> being said. Right. Like you're, you're protected by so many things that allow you to not be afraid, even if you get stopped accidentally, or even if you do do something wrong, like, um, so I needed to learn to get out of that bubble and then be mad at how unfair it was that not everybody got to have the experience that I did. Um, and then I think because of my parents and their logic and ration and rational nature and, and their, their jobs, like we read a lot and learned a lot. And that sent me out into the world, caring a lot about things outside of the superficial. So it's partly why I think like in sports, I'm not super served by just talking X's and O's. I get it. Mm. I love sports. I'm a huge sports fan, but I would feel like I wasn't doing right by my life if all I did was that stuff. So I, that's why I think I get really into using my voice for the intersection of social issues, for understanding that sports is a very rare place where you could have a group of people from every different race, religion, economic background, all in the same place, rooting for the same team, connecting and finding a shared identity in that space. 
And that's how you can get to create connections and conversations that are really hard to have elsewhere. Sports is one of the few places that really brings people together mm-hmm. and then allows you to try to connect um, where you wouldn't be able to if it was a political rally or a church or a neighborhood even. Um, and so mm-hmm. I don't think we can waste that and not put that to like good use in a larger way. I absolutely think that's your that plays up to your strength, like the intersection of multiple realms coming together and you're able and because you're so knowledgeable and well versed in various um, just various disciplines that you're able to like really take all this information in and spin it and listen to other people's opinions of you said in, in other interviews and then kind of create your own opinion about um, about maybe where we should go, the audience where we should go. Going back to your your parents, you you answered a lot of the questions I had because I knew that you had come from a family of lawyers. I know your sister is also a lawyer as well, yeah, right? She went to law okay. school. She now uh, actually her her job is is working to end homelessness in Chicago. So uh, oh, yeah, wow. I think my parents somehow invested in us a desire to. I'm I'm the black sheep actually, not going to law school and not doing uh, a great service like that. But yeah. Well, you're, you're, I mean, you're doing your activism in, in so many different yeah. ways and, and maybe less uh, school debt and financial debt by not having gone <laughs> exactly. to law, law school. <laughs> you know, when, and I, I wanted, I'm excited to talk to you about this because I don't know if you, you and I have really gotten a chance to talk about like our Spain and Prim um, experience. So for those that don't know, you know, we launched, it was in what, 2015, 2016, we're gonna oh look, gosh! The Gracie Award that you allowed say, me to take home. I'll say even earlier than that, maybe twenty. I think it was twenty fifteen. I met okay. Ben, my husband, in twenty. I, I think it was around twenty fifteen. Right. So we, so ESPN with the with the help of ESPNW and everybody and the powers that be, right? They launched what we know as potentially, arguably, most likely sports broadcasting's first ever all-female radio show produced and hosted by women. And so that that was you and I. Carrie Champion had an opportunity uh, to be included. She opted out. So it was just it was just you and I. And I had had at that point maybe a, nearly a decade of sports radio experience. But I don't know if anything really prepares you for like that first moment of your own radio show yep. with your name on it, on national airwaves, hosting, and just about to talk about every sport under the sun and big issues. And you know you're making, this is like a trailblazing pivotal mm-hmm. moment. And what I remembered about it was how nervous I was, <laughs> but how, but how your ability and drawing in your familial background, like your ability to, to apply your critical thinking skills, to formulate an opinion, to argue, to debate in ways that most people weren't prepared for. And I think that's the thing that I had missed going into that experience is like, this is not just about sports. It's not about my experience as an athlete. It's about your ability to have critical thinking skills and formulate an opinion. But I, what, were, what was your... Mm-hmm. It's so true. And honestly, so I have tremendous imposter syndrome still, and I've been at ESPN for 12 plus years, okay? <laughs> it's so difficult not to, I think, in this industry, unless you are tremendously narcissistic because... <laughs> there's always something to know and learn, right? Every day, somebody gets yeah. traded, injured, says something stupid, fights with their manager, gets a new g- contract. Um, so it's impossible to always feel like you know it all and that you won't get caught up 
not knowing something. And early in your career, I think there's a deep fear of being outed as not deserving of the position you're in or the job you have. And so that radio show was a perfect example of people were hoping and looking for us to fail because Mm -hmm. it was still, and it's amazing how in just the seven or so years since it's so much more normal for content to be provided by just women and for people to not even question it and for you not to even really need to address it. Like we had some funny bits in our show based solely on the amount of trolling we got just for being women. That <laughs> I don't even know if they would work now because time has changed enough, which is great. That's so wild. good. Um, yeah. But so when it comes to the, the, the thing that grounds me and says, first of all, it's okay if you don't know something. And I, I always shout out Dan Levitard for that because he's a multi-time award-winning, incredibly smart, thoughtful, hilarious, knowledgeable sports fan who will on his own show be like, hold up. Does anyone know who's the coach of the Grizzlies? <laughs> or he'll be like, can anyone name four players on the Kings? And he'll just offer up these moments to remind everyone that we don't yeah. know everything all the time. And it would be impossible to know every sport, every player, every piece of the roster, every coach. So, so that allowed me to be less defensive in moments where I would make a mistake and just be like, oh, that's my bad. I, I meant, I meant the Celtics, right? Instead of being like, oh my God, I said the wrong thing. And now everyone thinks that no women in the world should ever get this job again. Cause literally when I started, you know, 15 years ago, if I messed up and be like, this is why women shouldn't be in sports. And I'm like, no, I ruined it for the whole gender. Like, so, so that show, yeah. what, what grounds me and brings me back is my ability to synthesize ideas, have a thesis and argue it, remember and make cogent points about the bigger ideas or use the institutional knowledge of, oh, I remember talking about this a year ago. Let me bring in what I felt about, for instance, um, Dan Snyder to this new story that's coming out about a different ownership issue in terms of toxic harassment. And you know, once you've done it and you can bring in all these things. So I think you're absolutely right on that. And one of the things when I go back to schools and talk and I say for radio, when I'm putting down a rundown, a lot of times, if you think about it as topics, you are not setting yourself up for success. If mm. you think about it as a thesis for each segment, you are not, we're going to talk about the game. It's we're going to talk about how running backs were the key to winning this game or how quarterback play will decide the NFC East. Make a thesis and then use that to, to flesh out the segment. And, and so I think you're right, like that critical thinking that comes from being an English major, from writing and from mm-hmm. journal, like all that stuff, you bring that to radio. And then it's not just like, the Mount Rushmore of Philadelphia athletes or the super (laughs) hacky stuff that I'm so sick of hearing on radio where it's like Michael versus LeBron for the 8 billionth time. Like let's have a thoughtful conversation and fall back on the things we care about instead of feeling required to do the stuff that sounds like it's like the thing of the day. And that's Mm -hmm. another thing that you and I came up against that is much better now. Like for my show now, we talk WNBA we talk NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team. Like it was hard to get in a lot of women's sports stuff beyond yeah. something like Wimbledon back in the day because it was play the hits, play the hits, play the hits. And now there is a much bigger, I think, acceptance of talk about what's interesting to you, make it interesting to them and still do the big stuff. But mm-hmm. you can get into those topics. And you and I didn't have as much freedom in that sense. Yeah. The only freedom we had was, I mean, that's so wild to think that it was, yeah, about seven years ago and the landscape has changed so much. 
there was freedom to do our rap song, which yes. for those that don't know, that's where Prim Reaper and Sassinator comes from. Yep. Although, yeah, I don't know how those nicknames, I think it was one of our fans actually that Kate gave us those yeah. nicknames, right? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So here, here is your voice and we've now recognized the familial upbringing of where, um, <laughs> <laughs> producer Maze is asking, Prim, do you have a copy of, I have a copy of my rap song yeah. on YouTube, Spain. Yeah. Do you were, have a copy um, of that? I think they're on YouTube. Uh, uh, just full warning. They were uh, roasts. It was <laughs> not merely who's better at rapping. I literally made fun of Prim for leaving her ex-fiance at the altar. And she... <laughs> oh, I totally don't remember that. <laughs> And it's okay. I made fun of your Cor- Cornell my, experience, yeah, Cornell, and for my eBay Super Bowl stunt. Uh, oh so, wow! Yeah, yeah, it was a full. It was a full yeah. on roast. Uh, it was. It, we went. We both went pretty hard in the paint. I think we, we both were like a little nervous that the other one was going to be too nice, and then we both were like, "Oh damn, she went there!" <laughs> and then Prim also cheated and got Amin Al Hassan to <laughs> do the intro for hers. Um, I also was slightly hindered by planning to rap over a backbeat that ended up, they, they put them together before we ran it. And it was slightly off by like one quarter of oh, a second. Oh, mine was so much so off. So it made I, me seem like no. I didn't have rhythm, which like. I felt the same way. You That's know, Allie Bronson. She screwed, she screwed yeah, me blame, over. Blame, blame Allie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good morning, boys and girls. I'm your substitute teacher. My name is Mr. Hassan. The topic for today is what you would like to be when you grow up. You, over there in that Cubs hat, drinking on that Paps Blue Ribbon with the cheap lingerie on. What's your name? My name is Sarah. Sarah Spain. All right, Sarah. What you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a lawyer or a comedian or maybe a sports broadcaster. I don't know. I just want to do something that lets me talk all the time or maybe a vet i love animals all right hey you in the back with those pigtails what's your name my name is poco all right poco what you want to be when you grow up i want to be a g you better ask somebody This is for the G's and this is for the hustlers. This is for the hustlers. Now back to the G's. This is for the G's and this is for the hustlers. This is for the hustlers. Now back to the G's. Freeze. At ease. Now let me drop some more of them keys. It's 2015 ESPN Dub presents Dub Spain and a P. Jeff and Swim. Me and she, she claims she went to an Ivy League. Guess what? It's a half private, half state university. Acceptance rate is higher than all the other Ivy Leagues. Yeah, Spain didn't know what she wanted to be, so she became a heptath. Read a heptathlete, that is hella cheap. Me, I'm the P, the P, D, O, double G, the P, D, I'm the G. Yeah, she be me, just wait and see. Cause y'all think I'm all prim and proper. But Spain is a proper, I'm the showstopper. So, 
I'm the real mother G. I'm the tennis baller, yeah, I'm preppy, yeah, I'm shorty, but I'm speedy, and I was top 10 in the country. But she, the Spain, assassinated the Twitter, terminated the debate, inseminated the self-esteem deflator, a Cornell grad, as cool as the Shermanator. This girl, Spain, you either love her or you hate her, I got nothing but love for her. So what makes her, her? I'll explain a little later. This is for the G's, and this is for the hustlers, this is for the hustlers, now back to the G's. This is for the G's, and this is for the hustlers, this is for the hustlers, now back to the G's. Miss Sarah Spain, this girl ain't got no shame, she got a different kind of game, a lady that be hard to tame. How she got a fame? Well, putting yourself out on eBay like a tease, so they can hang out with you and your double E's. Men be dropping so much cheese for that Super Bowl at SoB, but your bears, they be sputtering and losing to Indy. Peyton be the MVP, 2007, you snooze, you lose. Girl, please stop trying to be a G. Keep that dude, Steve, that be Steve Bartman. Cause all you are is a tease Sitting on the side seat I'm the driver cause I got them keys To the show called to Spain and a P Between you and me I'm the real mother G This is for the G's And this is for the hustlers This is for the hustlers Now back to the G's This is for the G's And this is for the hustlers This is for the hustlers Now back to the G's This is for the G's And this is for the hustlers This is for the hustlers Now back to the G's This is for the G's And this is for the hustlers This is for the Hustlers, now back to the G's. To the foe, it's Spain, doggy dog, your worst nightmare at the dough. Ready to make this diss track, so back on up, cause you know I'm about to tear you up. I'm taking the microphone solo, I don't need a co-host. I'm the captain now, the listeners love me the most. You ain't nothing like a G-thing lady. Your street cred claims are just crazy. Disney is a label that pays me. Suspendable, so I gotta keep this clean. But uh, back to my girl Prim S. She's from Mexico, Missouri, so you do not want to mess. And from a real G's perspective, before me dog and the b- have to find out what the heck she is. You never know she could be Indian or Asian, Peruvian, Caucasian, Brazilian, or Malaysian. Now you know why I looked up that in my. I was wrong about it all. The girl is straight up time. Now that's bigger than Big Shop Bob, and all you viewers are aware that she's quite a heartthrob. Well, if she's good enough to get a full ride to Duke, I bet she's ballin' on a court like Al Farouk. It's like this and like that and like this and a. It's like that and like this and like that and a. It's like this and like that and like this and a. Spain throw to yourself like a phantom. Well, I'm walking and I'm talking and I'm squawking, cause I got more to say, and you know I ain't balkin'. Now it's time for me to expose little Miss Prim. Acting like she's all proper, you ain't Prim Slim. You Popping bottles late night before a match. Never telling your parents about those piercings and tats. At the same time, rocket prime time shifts. But you know, and I know, you hiding some funky sh- Like your engagement ring collection. The selection symbolizes nope, took a toke, but choked. Told your boy, you have no clue. And I'm canceling this wedding. I ain't marrying you. Like this and like that and like this and uh. It's like that and like this and like that and uh. It's like this and we ain't got no love for those. So just chill till the next podcast. Get 
getting back to those claims of your hellified gangsta lean. You ain't funky on the mic, you're just a beauty queen. I'm the capital S, so yes, I'm fresh from A to Z. See these double Ds, I'm the real G, can't you see? Showing you up when it's time to spit the truth. Making magic on the daily like my name was Joe Bluth. Yeah, and I don't quit. I'm the one they want when they want some G. So Spain, yes, me. We gotta give them what they want. What's that, me? We gotta break them off something. Hell yeah. And it's gotta be bumping. City of Chi-Town. It's where it takes place, so I'ma ask your attention. Jonathan Tapes and PK never were flinching. Dropping the lowly bolts to grab the Stanley Cup again. Should've repped the winners, not the losers, Miss Prim. You tried to talk and yet got smacked. My homie Corey Crawford had my back. They never slip, I never slip, we never slipping. Hawks won the series, so you know I ain't tripping. And if you continue to party with my team, I put you down. Try to drink from our cup, I have to put the smack down. Yeah, girl, you gotta stop. Tell you you're just like LeBron when you flip and you flop. But I'm never off, always on till the break of dawn. C-H-I-C-A-G-O, the city of broad shoulders. That's where the real G's live, like your girl SS. No one can do it better like this, that, and this. And uh, it's like that and like this and like that. And uh, it's like this. So who gives a f- about those? So just chill till the next podcast. We now, I now have the backdrop of how your your voice was built and the foundation that it, it rests on. I would also on. add one little yeah. thing that I just thought of. And so I was six feet tall by the time I was 12. I was pretty uncomfortable and awkward in my skin. I had frizzy hair and braces and I was kind of nerdy. And sports were like a massive part of my confidence. Mm-hmm. And when your confidence comes from something that you are admittedly very good at, And I was never as good at anything as you were at say tennis, but I was good at everything. Like whatever sport Mm -hmm. you were going to put me in, I was going to crush it. I beat every boy in the school in a race in junior high. There wasn't a single boy in class that was faster than me. I was going to play this sport, this sport, this sport, this sport. And then as you get older and you get pushed up against the idea that what you do doesn't matter or isn't as important or isn't as good in the, in the sports world as the boys or the, or men, I think that became a little chip on my shoulder and also Mm. influenced my desire to, to push back on things that didn't seem fair. Like when I was in, um, high school, for instance, I was all state and band and chorus. So I didn't have any extra classes for gym and they were trying to make me take gym, even though I was on three varsity sports. So I literally went to the Illinois state educational law book. And I found out the reasons stated as to why every student should have to go to PE. And then I presented of two lawyers, 100% presented (laughs) to the school that all of the things like you know, physical education is good for these reasons. I was like, I'm getting all of this from my varsity practice every day. I shouldn't have to give up either lunch or P or band or chorus or my classes for this. So they let me take like pass fail gym, but I had to go at seven 45 in the morning before school, but I just had to show up enough times to like pass. So I was like, this isn't right or fair. This isn't being done right. So I'm going to argue it in college, the college, the Cornell football team tried to get all of us track athletes to change out of what we practiced in into official weight room gear because they said the the football players were distracted by our spandex. And I was like, 
I need to wear this to jump into like a sand pit and not get sand in my undies. (laughs) So I'm not going to go and change for you. You focus on what you need to do for your sport. Mm -hmm. That's on you, not us. So I started a petition and had all the female athletes sign it, that it was basically sexist to have us change our behaviors for them. And then they dropped it. So there are these moments throughout where I see this, like, I didn't think of it as activism. I was just like, that's BS. And now I'm like, okay, there were these moments when it didn't seem like stuff was being done fairly or for the right reasons. And I was immediately like, I'm gonna step up and do something about it. And I think a lot of that comes from like standing out physically, but also, Mm. but also like having so much pride in this thing and not wanting anyone to like diminish its worth or make me feel inferior or less than. And so there was always this, like, I can beat the boys. I can outdo the boys. I can be better than the boys like all the time. And so that, so you at 12 years old, standing at six feet tall, and because you stood out, you had this, was it this, this motivation to, because you stood out, but you wanted to also show that you belong there, regardless of what it was. So I want to make sure I'm like understanding just the dynamics. So I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like twofold. It's like, in a lot of situations, I wanted to be smaller because it was uncomfortable mm. to be so big. You know, I was always worried about being called like manly or like too strong or, you know, like not being cute and girly when it came to like flirting with boys and things like that. But then I drew so much confidence from being faster and stronger and taller and better that that became such a part of my identity that I felt like I needed to protect and defend women in sports, like, and, and girls mm. who, who loved sports, right? The idea that you would grow up and constant, I mean, it took me like eight years into working at ESPN for people to stop saying, Oh, you work at ESPN. Do you like sports? Like, so that's a <laughs> lifetime of being like, what do you want for Christmas? Just Michael Jordan books. Okay. But do you want, no, just Michael Jordan books and Michael Jordan shirts and Michael Jordan VHSs, right? Like, what do you want? I bulls tickets. Right. And then like, despite all of that, no one engaged and talked to me about sports. Like if I were a boy and my entire existence was built around all the sports I played and how much I love Jordan and the bulls and all that people would be fostering that. Mm-hmm. But as a girl, it was sort of like, oh, okay, she likes that stuff. And, and we'll, you know, so it, it was, I think there's something in there that's always been like, sort of strange, but I used to, especially in my twenties, be like, I would make such a great dude. I'm tall. I'm funny. (laughs) I'm outgoing. I'm smart. I'm confident. And I was not finding that those qualities were Mm. valued in women the same way. And not at least not within the gender, traditional gender norms. Yes. Mm -hmm. At that time, especially, and especially like early twenties when you're trying to date and every boy I liked was dating like a tiny little cutesy nugget who was just like, Oh, you're so funny. Um, And I was like, Oh God, I'm the dude in all of these relationships. Like, you know what I mean? And I have felt that way in spaces throughout my life is like, I don't see any difference. So why would, why would everybody always have to filter everything through the lens of gender? Mm -hmm. And, and I, you know what I mean? I think it's because I grew up in a space and then, you know, relatively unscathed throughout high school and college where those things came up 
but it wasn't as hitch in the face until, you know, you get into the in- industry and then you're like, oh, all these things I've been pushing back on in my whole life. They're now being like writ large in actual people being like, you don't belong here. You shouldn't do this job, that kind of stuff. I went on a long tangent there, but you, no, you got I think, me thinking and trying to figure out like the yeah. root cause of all this stuff. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I want you, I want to, in terms of the things that you had to deal with, I would love to hear a story if you have like in the back of your mind. And I don't want to steer away from that. But I think the way you describe your experience, is just kind of like this conflicting paradox that I feel as though other athletes who went through some of the physical developmental experiences that you did, like the Greg Odins of the world, the Gabby Reese's of the world, where they were like seven feet tall at 12 years old and they were towering over everybody. And so they wanted to shrink. And and Greg Odin, the former number one overall pick has a much shyer introverted personality than you do. So that made it very uncomfortable for him uh, to have to live in that body. But as they both and other you know, particularly basketball players have talked about sport gave them a reason to be tall. It gave them a, it gave them a sense of community. So when I hear you talk about it, it sounds like your experiences kind of like, depending on the time or day or context, like you really fluctuated with both like, damn it. I feel I, I don't fit into that traditional gender stereotype or norm. And I want to shrink. And then other moments where you're like, F it. I'm just, this is like, this is who I am. I'm, 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 I'm a ride with this. I'm going to fight for myself. I'm going to fight for others. And so it seemed like you had these like two other, these two sides just kind of like, uh, dancing with each other, fighting against one, one of, uh, against one another. Am I kind of like processing it? Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Hmm. So, and then when you, so at what point was there an inflection point where, where, some of the, the, the need to shrink or recognize you, you weren't fitting into the typical mold of what others expected of you and for you as a female athlete and then eventually as a sports personality. What moment, I, I, I guess I have two questions, like what moment, the inflection point, the turning point where you're like, I'm really going to embrace me. And then what were some of the moments that were like, where you realize, gosh, this is, this is really hard. Like, how am I going to get through this knowing that I don't there's, fit there's within two, that mold? Yeah. So first I fit into the game, which was not me. So I was living out in LA. It was after, so I originally moved to LA to try to do comedy and acting. I went to second city conservatory, did the whole improv conservatory, did acting classes, worked at a restaurant, you know, all the cliche things. Um, and took a TV hosting boot camp over the weekend, hosted a fake Chicago Bears show. And the teacher said, Oh, you want to work in sports? And I was like, No, there's no women in sports. It's like Aaron Andrews, supermodel types, or like very serious. I want to be funny. There's no women who get to be funny. And she was like, Well, it just seems very natural. You should look into it. And I was like, Huh. And it had literally never occurred to me, which is wild because, again, mm-hmm. I played three sports growing up. I was a Division one athlete. I even worked at a sports production company right after college through a random connection uh, mm-hmm. from Cornell. And never, uh, I didn't see any women doing what I wanted to do. And I also, like I said before, had never really had my love of sport fostered the way that somebody might notice in a boy that wants to go to games and wants to talk about sports. And also my parents aren't really into sports. So no fault of theirs, but they're, they're not big sports fans. So they weren't going to sit down and talk to me about like the bulls opponent or whether the bears were going to look good. Right. 
So I decided to take a class at UCLA sports, uh, UCLA extension, which is classes for non enrollees in TV sports reporting. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is like all the things it's my journalism and writing background. It's extemporaneous speaking and interviewing off the cuff and performing in that way. It's love of sport. It's all these things. So I was like, maybe I should try this. Got a job at Fox sports net. And this is where the first decision came. I'm looking around the landscape and it's hard to describe to people who don't remember this, but the wild, wild west of internet sports blogs in 2003 to 2010 ish was alongside every sarcastic sports story was wives and girlfriends, Maxim's hottest smoke show. Like you could not go on a sports blog without seeing TNA. Um, and occasionally the one woman you would see working would be a pop-up video in the corner that would be like, Hey everybody, it's sporty (laughs) soon. And I'm here with your big news of the day. Right. And it was like, okay. And so you're looking around (laughs) the space. It's incredibly misogynist. It's incredibly fratty. It's demeaning to women. And I'm like, oh, this is the space I'm trying to get into because that's the entry point, right? I'm not going to go work for ESPN. I didn't go to journalism school. I have one UCLA class under my belt in sports reporting. Um, and so I'm like, these are like the places that you try to get in. Right. So one of the first jobs I got, I had to like erase all of who I'm and like, Prim, you know, me, like I would much rather make everyone laugh than even attempt to be sexy. I suck. When I try to be sexy, I look like I'm going to murder an entire family. My sexy look looks more like, oh no, who pissed her off? And like, who's going to die first? (laughs) It's terrible. Like just awful. Um, and I think a lot of that also comes from, like I said, like I was very awkward coming up. So like my best connection point was to make people laugh, not to like try to be girly and like figure out what men wanted, you know? So (laughs) one of the first gigs I got is called fantasy sports girl. And the, production value was super high. It was at Jim Rome's like million plus dollar studio. I got to have a writing credit. I got to be on camera. So this is like my first big job It's with ESPN producers who are doing this as a side thing, but I have to do fantasy football tips in jerseys that, I, that by the way, this is where my multifaceted skills come into play. I <laughs> sewed them myself. They were like, could you get some oh, like wow. jerseys or shirts that like are sporty, but like have a lot of cleavage and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like at home taking like Jamarcus <laughs> Russell Jersey and like cutting a big V and then using like ribbon to make lacing across the front of my boobs or oh, like one shoulder, like 49ers t-shirts that have turned into like crops. I'm very impressed actually, both my soap. <laughs> that that back, is really impressive. Thankfully, they never shot the back of the shirts. That's where all of the magic stopped. That's where like, I was like, let me pull this and then staple this. But, and so <laughs> I'm doing stuff. these stupid videos where I'm like, hey boys, it's fantasy sports girl, Sarah. And I've got your tips for week 12. Like the bears are going to beat the bungles with the two tight ends. Like, bleh, like, ew, worst nightmare. So not me. But I'm like, this is so exciting. I'm on camera. I get to write the tips and do the research, right? And so that was one of those moments where I'm like, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like, this is what you are telling everyone in this business that they need to do. And I have a guy friend who's still in the business. He was a stripper. 
and he is in a banana hammock calendar. No one will ever know or find out because no one cares about what men did to get their jobs or who they were before. Amazing. But every single woman in the business, someone will find out if she was a beauty queen or if she yes. was in a bathing suit at one point in her life. And then they will find that photo and they will be like, this girl thinks she likes sports, but she wore a bathing suit once. And it's like, oh my God. So like, this is yes. where I have to start so that now... 20 years later, people can find a photo of me with my boobs up to my chin in a tied up jersey and be like, oh, you're a feminist? And I'm like, yeah, because I had to go through that BS to get my job, <laughs> which has nothing to do with whether I'm good at this or not, that I had to do that dumb show. So anyway, that was the decision that I made. And unfortunately, wouldn't you know it, that's when my career took off. That's when I get noticed. That's when I get opportunities, which is why it's so frustrating. And I think that has changed a lot. There are so many more women in the business. There are so many more opportunities to find your foothold and to get in the business without having degrading yourself in that way. But at that time, that's literally like how so many women got started was these you know, shows or moments where some decision maker who is thinking with the wrong head is like her, I like that. And then they get to work their way up and prove that they were always smarter and better than that. But that's how they had to get there. But a couple years later, I've gotten a couple gigs. I end up moving to Chicago. I'm working for a startup website. I end up doing uh, radio updates for ESPN 1000. So that's when I first started working for ESPN in Chicago. And couple years in, maybe two years in, I realized like I could keep playing the game of like, I'm the girl everyone wants to get a beer with and talk sports and haha, this show's so fun. Or I can turn on the mic every once in a while and call out the hosts for their misogyny. Because I was the first woman on the air every day at that station for 11 years. It had been 11 years since they had any female voice on every day. And I was still just doing updates. I wasn't hosting a show. But every once in a while, I was like, I can't, be a part of this culture without stepping in every once in a while and making my voice heard. And that was a pivot point or a decision where it was like, I need to care more about the women coming up after me that are trying to do this job. I need to care more about the women who are listening and want to feel like this show is also for them and that it isn't super misogynist than I do about whether everybody likes me. And trust me, there's way more people that don't like me now when they hear me talk about serious issues like domestic violence, sexual assault, male-female dynamics, feminism, toxic workplace environments, like all the issues that they don't want to hear about because they just want to watch their sports and not care about that stuff. But I will never now be able to go back to like what's going to make me the most rich and famous, which is just mm -hmm. to be like this fun sports girl. Um, I can't do that. So I think... First, I had to go the opposite way in order to get my foot in the door. And then once I was in, I was like, now I got to get enough agency and voice to be able to change it. It's so fascinating to hear you describe <clears throat> your, your way of getting into the industry. And it makes me reflect about my experience and, and it's like, what in what ways that I had to alter who I was authentically because I had to play because we both had to play the game in some capacity yeah. because the, the, the way to enter was 
much smaller. The opportunity and the the gateway was much smaller. You know, for me, the stories are center around my name being too ethnic and and un-American and it's mm. going to be too long for people to remember. So all of a sudden I was, you know, at 23 years old deciding, do I want to be Prim Smith and just like completely discard <laughs> my whole, you know, right. familial and, and uh, you know, historical ethnic back background or I needed to cut my hair because it was too sloppy and sexy and feminine. And somehow some the length of our hair determines like who we right. are as credible reporters and everything, just like the stories. And it, when you think about it, it just, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you know, we're not exactly, right. we're not spring chickens, but we're still not happening totally old. in some yeah. places like where they're still yes. like, cut your hair, dye your hair blonde, wear this outfit, come do this. And like, it's still yeah. happening. I don't want to ignore that the people, especially the people coming up are still dealing with a lot of that BS, but it's just very different than back then. Can you share a story about some of the BS that you that you dealt with? Because I think this is part of it. I know people have heard some of the stories, but I don't think it hurts to ever hear some of the stories that that women do have to kind of go through, especially and the things that you do have to deal with when you're trying to like play the game just to pursue your own vocational aspirations. Yeah, I was just talking about one of them the other day because there's some guys that work in Chicago, uh, mostly like team PR or team comms who are just awesome guys now. And they're kind of, they've grown up and gotten married and had kids. And in a couple of their cases, daughters. And so they'll send me clips of like, this is so cool. Congrats. Or always great to see you. Or my daughter, like, you know, I, I had her listen to your show. And they're the same guys that when I first started it out, were a part of the group of people that presumed the worst about me. So when I first moved back wow. to Chicago, I worked in for a startup website called Mouthpiece Sports. It's supposed to be the voice of the athlete, ignoring sort of the PR spin that comes from the major media networks. It's a website where we would have access to the locker rooms through unique connections that the creators had made being in the business in Chicago for song. This was before like most blogs and websites got access to locker rooms. We would get that access and then we would bring people more of like who the players were and their personalities and stuff. Um, so I had not been in any locker rooms of any kind before. Like I skipped all the one man band in the middle of nowhere kind of news reporting stuff. Wow. I skipped, I skipped going into high school or college locker rooms for interviews. I skipped journalism school, just went straight into like <laughs> professional clubhouses in like the second largest sports market in the country. Wow. Right? So didn't really know what I was doing, but I was 27 years old or so. So I was able to connect with athletes that were my age and ask them questions that brought out their personality, used my improv background to try to do some fun things. Um, and so I wasn't doing exactly what everyone else was doing, but I certainly was not trying to draw attention to myself and wearing five inch heels and all the other stuff. I will admit that I dress differently now than I did then because I came from LA and again, the market was telling me this is what women look like. So I'm uh. dressed up to go into locker rooms in a way that now I would wear probably a t-shirt and jeans, but I was on camera thinking, you know, and, and then if I didn't dress up, the comments on the videos were like, you look shitty today. And I'd be like, okay. But then if it's like, I look too cute, it's like the only comments are about my body and not the interview. It's like such a impossible fine line to find, but I was in the Blackhawks locker room for maybe two or three weeks. I don't even know if a single player knew my name at this point. And a longtime radio guy in the city told me that he had heard through a connection in the, in the clubhouse or the media 
that some longtime mid fifties reporter dude had told the PR staff that I was getting better answers to my questions. So I must've been sleeping with one of the players and that maybe she shouldn't be in the locker room anymore because she must have inappropriate. Meanwhile, like I said, I'm 27. I'm talking to them like a peer. I haven't been on the beat for 30 years. I'm not asking, you know, is the, is the, you know, penalty kill struggling for X or Y reasons. I'm trying to get more personality driven stuff. It's gonna be a different interview, right? So that was the first whammy. Um, I was in the clubs, uh, Cubs clubhouse for a while and, uh, all the people come and do the seventh inning stretch. And I took a picture with Mr. T when he was up doing the the seventh inning stretch, posted it on the live game blog I was doing. And the, the game blog was supposed to be like more personality than just a straight thing. That was the point of our website. And they said that they didn't want me in the clubhouse anymore because you weren't supposed to take photos like that. Meanwhile, plenty of other reporters had done that. And I didn't get a warning. And a friend of mine who worked in the uh, production side said she was in a meeting where one of the PR guys said um, that my boobs were a distraction. So apparently that's it. And she's like, I was like, well, I can't like hang them up outside the locker room and then grab them on my way out. Like they're gonna, gonna be there regardless. And then shortly after all that. So now I've got two teams where I'm dealing with these issues and I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Like I'm blaming myself for everything. And it Mm -hmm. was not me. I was not behaving inappropriately. I was not flirting with players. I was not standing out in any way. I was not causing problems in any way. In fact, my cameraman almost went and like got in it with the Cubs people after that, because he was with me every day. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you're not doing anything. Like this is complete BS. There's one other woman in the locker room. She's in her 60s. She's been there forever. It's because you walk in And you're a 20 something, six foot tall girl with boobs. Like you're not Mm -hmm. doing or acting or dressing in any way that's inappropriate. So we were, I was very frustrated. And then I got an assignment from the Chicago Tribune to do a quick story on nicknames across Chicago teams. And, uh, they weren't going to credential me for bulls practice. And when my editor called about them denying it, they were like, Oh, we've heard she doesn't dress appropriately. And he was like, so she hasn't even been to your practices and and it was like, yeah, well, we had, he's like, that's not an appropriate reason to deny our credential. Like, please. And so it was like, I had done nothing. And again, mm-hmm. I was not dressing inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Like now I work really hard to like make it as not sexy as possible. Like I try to look less attractive on purpose. At the time it was this balance of still like, oh, this is how I stay in this business. Right. Um, but even then it was not inappropriate. Um, and so it was just like this lesson of like, geez, like this is how it is. This is not just stereotypes or things that you hear about the business. This is actually what the business is. And that same longtime radio guy was like, you just got to put your head down and keep working and be so good that they can't say no to you, like that they can't use this BS. So I end up with ESPN, start going in for sports center and stuff. And all of a sudden I start doing um, numbers ever lie and Oberman and E60 and sports center. And all of a sudden the same people are like, Oh, I saw you on Oberman. That was really great, really smart. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's who I've always been. You just assumed the worst. And I think mm-hmm. that that's still the case for so many women in this business is they will assume that any guy working knows their stuff and is there because they care about it. And they have to prove otherwise. The guy has to prove himself to be an idiot. Whereas with girls and women, it's like, we're going to assume that you don't know your stuff and that you're a groupie or that you're whatever until you prove otherwise. And it's an unfair thing that you have to prove early on and you get really treated poorly. Um, 
you know, the other one I've told before a million times is, you know, going out for an interview uh, across the country and the person that I would have been paired with on air trying to kiss me, talking to me about how great our sex would be, asking me about how I manicure my various body parts, uh, not being willing to drive me back to my hotel after we went to go to some like work event to pop by, um, you know, that kind of stuff that's, and you know, common story. Almost everyone has it sadly. I I mean, I think when, when you, when you tell all of those stories in such a short period of time, it even makes it even makes my my heart drop. It gives me a pit in my stomach because um, I just imagine you sitting there at 27 years old, just like what? Just throwing your hands up and just being like, I don't even know what what am I doing? And you feel mm-hmm. like it's a personal attack on you. And and I don't know what, why, I don't have a reason for this, but there are certain personalities for whatever reason that seem to, that are so charismatic, but at the same time, they also draw a, like a certain kind of attack. Like Stephen A. Smith comes to mm-hmm. mind, you know, and, and I'm, I'm kind of like one of those mellow personalities yeah, where, yeah. where I'll never be like, you know, given the hot takes. And on the other side of it, I won't ever be like, the person that's like super popular and everyone's dying to have on their channels and all that other stuff. But I don't necessarily draw like that type of, that type of harsh criticism too. Mm -hmm. Is there, have you thought about like, do you ever wonder like, why me? Why, why is this? You know, cause this happened to all of us. No, I have 100, I 100% know why. I I 100% know why. It's because I'm an opinionated woman who doesn't stay in her place. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I call things out and I refuse to be. So like you just said, when you're, first of all, you're getting mixed signals from a business that's telling you the only way to make it is to be a super hot chick, but also don't be too hot because then we presume that you're a slut who doesn't care about sports, right? It's a completely Mm -hmm. impossible line to, to walk. But then also learning again, coming from this privilege of like, I'm a division one athlete and Ivy league school, I'm getting treated like a smart, accomplished person because I was mm-hmm. then getting out in the real world and having everyone assume that I'm some dumb bimbo who doesn't, who hasn't worked super hard her whole life, who isn't an athlete, who isn't walking into these spaces, feeling comfortable because I've been there before, like to have that and to recognize all of a sudden, Oh my gosh, like it doesn't matter what I say or do people have already decided who I am based solely on Hmm. what I look like and who I am. Like I had this, this blow up on social media years ago because I posted a photo at this was before I was part owner of the red stars. I went to a game that they honored me at and I was just wearing a Jersey and jeans. And I took a picture with like seven or eight little six to seven year old girls that want to take a photo with me. And some guy commented on it. Oh my God, look at your boobs or whatever. And I just was like, trying to explain to people what an awful feeling it is that it doesn't matter at all the context. You will always be seen first by some people as just that. Wow. And it's very, um, it's very uncomfortable for someone who, as I said before, I don't like to be sexy. I, you know, I have a sex life with my husband when I was dating and I was attracted to someone, I was excited if they were also attracted to me, but I've never wanted to walk around spaces and had people 
be leering at me. Sure. I don't, I don't find it. Some women and some men love that attention, regardless of whether they're interested in the people looking at them. They like the idea of being on display. I've never liked that. And so constantly being reminded that that's how people see me, regardless of what I'm saying or doing or the work that I've put in is so disheartening mm. and so demoralizing that I think it influences a lot of the ways I try to take on BS against women. And I know that that's what a lot of people don't like. So first of all, I'm not quiet. I'm not petite. I don't bite my tongue. I'm not afraid. I'm not going to back down. That's already enough as a woman to be completely unlikable. Um, (laughs) But then I'm in a male dominated space where I don't play the game anymore. Mm. I'm not trying to be cute. Like, I think about this all the time for some reason. I was doing Highly Questionable, which is a ridiculous and absurd show. And there's a (laughs) banana phone. Okay, that's how ridiculous this show was. There was a phone that looked like a banana that we would just pretend to have ring in the middle of the show and someone would call. And I once during the show picked up the banana. They were like, ring, ring. And I was like, um, hello, who is it? As a joke. And someone literally wrote, I wish you were like that more often. And I was like, what? And it just reminded me of like how many people really just want women to be quiet and cute and sexy and sweet. And, and so, no, I'm not surprised at all that I piss people off. I just don't care anymore. At one point I cared a lot more about everybody liking me and making sure I was very popular and everybody liked me and wanted to grab a beer and talk sports. And now I'm like, I want to change the industry. I want to change the game. And I put responsibility on myself for the people that I respect to think that I'm doing the right thing. Not everybody. Mm -hmm. If everybody hates me because I want to keep bringing up issues of sexual, you know, uh, and gender interactions like domestic violence, rape, assault, et cetera. If I want to, you know, talk about issues that people find annoying because they just want to watch their sports and ignore how many marginalized people are trampled in the process, uh, I'm going to do it. And, and so I get that that's going to push a lot of people, but you know, I've kind of lost that need to be the most likable. And I've instead decided I want to impress and, and have people that I care about respect me. Losing that need to be likable and to be liked and to be accepted and to be validated, at least externally is like the most freeing thing Mm -hmm. in the world. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I attribute it to just like maturity and experience, maybe mm-hmm. late thirties, early forties, yep. especially for women is kind of like when it comes, like just not giving a shit about what anybody thinks mm-hmm. is like the most freeing thing in the world. What was that moment for you? When was that moment? Do you remember it? No. I mean, there's been a couple, I think the first one is long time ago at ESPN radio being like, all right, this is going to annoy some people, but I'm going to turn the mic on and I'm going to tell the guys to stop this particular conversation or whatever, or always using sarcasm, always using my sense of humor, never trying to be naggy, but just popping in and being Mm. like, let me cut up this terrible misogyny with some jokes at their expense to like have the other side represented. Right. So that was early in it. But then, you know, the Ray Rice incident, I think was a pivot point for a lot of networks. ESPN already had ESPNW in-house. And as plenty of places were floundering with a full set of seven to eight men in suits, absolutely having no clue how to address interpersonal violence or any aspect of the story, 
ESPN was able to elevate people like me and Kate Fagan and Jane McManus to talk about it. And even though we weren't experts either, we were putting in the work to understand the dynamics of power and control versus anger management. Everyone, oh, you should go to anger management. That's not what interpersonal and, 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 and intimate partner violence is. Um, those moments, I think they recognized that that was a space that they could elevate us. And at first it was frustrating because I would always get the phone call to talk about domestic violence, mm. Floyd Mayweather, Ray Rice, you know, like those kind of stories. That was the only real call ups I would get. And thankfully, Lebetard is one of the few that like had me on the first two times to talk about that stuff. And then was like, you know, we always call you to talk about this. Like we should have you come and hang out with us when it's not about that. And so flew me out to Miami, did the show for the day and just, we all hit it off. And that became a huge part of, you know, what I, what I did here when, when Levitard show was still part of ESPN. Um, but I think those moments where, I mean, I, per, per, I can tell you, as soon as I'm going to talk about that stuff, that my entire feed is going to be blowing up with death threats, mm. misogyny, awful. I hope your dog gets hit by a car. I hope your husband beats you. I hope you're the next one he gets like the craziest stuff. And so that was a real lesson for me. Like, do I stand in it and take this and keep talking about what matters and expressing opinions that are needed? Or do I go back to the spaces that are real comfortable and easy? Let's talk NBA, right? And so that was another choice. And being able to look around the space and say, this is needed. Somebody mm -hmm. needs to talk about this. And it, it's just what you talked about, that activism that came early, looking around and saying, somebody needs to like stand up for this or this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't okay. Has always been sort of the through line. Like I, I recently was talking about um, the raised players who wouldn't wear pride patches on their uniforms and who were still using the antiquated language of, I don't agree with that lifestyle. And I ended up on Tucker Carlson and Greg Gutfeld and Breitbart and the Daily Caller and Ben Shapiro and Clay Travis and like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of awful messages and attacks and didn't even phase me for a second other than the annoyance of needing to spend time during my day, block, 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 delete, delete, delete. <laughs> it didn't phase me because I said, I know exactly what truth I'm standing in. I know exactly that I'm protecting people's desire to love and live their lives unmolested. That's it. It's that simple. So if I need to have a bunch of people hate me and attack me for that, I'm privileged. I'm a straight cisgender white woman who has a great job and a great life. I will take some of the slings and arrows to protect marginalized groups and people that need to have people like me fighting for them. And I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that like, once you are in those positions where you can decide to, to shy away. I think if you're someone like me that can handle it and I don't judge yeah. those who can't, you know, a lot of people do not have the, the mental health or the just general disposition to no. deal with that kind of harassment. And so since I can, I'm going to put myself like on the front yeah. lines. I mean, I consider myself a, a fairly like strong discipline, somebody who's got some thick skin after having been in this industry and whatever. And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can take that type of mantle, maybe the mantle of mental health and win that space because I've had that personal yeah. journey. But, you know, I, I, I think I quickly learned from Billie Jean King and Venus Williams when they were kind of fighting for equal pay at Wimbledon. And, and 
I, one of them or both of them had kind of mentioned like, listen, this is not for everybody to, to hold that torch and, and yep. to be that voice and to lead. Not everybody can do that. And not everybody has the skills or the, and, and the will and the motivation and um, the wherewithal to do it. And, and we can protest. And the thing is, is that the beauty of it is, is that we can protest in our own way. It can yes. be, it can be loud. It can be silent. Yeah. So, and I talked to a lot of people about that. Like people like Doris mm-hmm. Burke, I've talked to her about her, her way of breaking down barriers is just to be excellent at what she does, to um, be so good at it that she helps set an example that people can't say women can't do this because she's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not necessarily suited. and doesn't necessarily want to get on all the platforms and talk about it. She will when directly addressed and she's eloquent and very smart about it, but that's not her. And that's very naturally who I am is like rabble rouser fight, fight for stuff kind of person. So I lean into it. If you can imagine one moment in your life that was kind of a breaking point, maybe one of the lowest moments or the lowest moments of your life or career, what would you say to that Sarah Spain now, today as advice? Um, You know, that would probably be around the time of, well, first that interview that ended up being a complete exercise in sexual harassment, um, where I didn't get the gig, um, and, you know, went back to LA and wondered if this business for me was for me. And then within the next year or so moving to Chicago and having those interactions in the locker rooms when I first got there, um, that was pretty low. That was pretty like, you know, I don't know what I can do. I'm trying to toe this line between being attractive enough to be allowed here, but somehow not having people think that I'm a dumb, uneducated bimbo. And, um, the best advice I was the advice I got from, from the longtime radio guy here, which was just put your head down and work so hard. They can't say no to you. And that's the same advice I would give myself back then. But what I would say, and what I regret is how much internalized misogyny I still carry with me and have to acknowledge and push back on. Um, But how much I've learned in the last like 20 years or so, I'm really, I really am jealous of 20 somethings reading Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I think it's the most incredible life-changing book. I've read it three times. There are so many elements in that book that point out societal conditioning and the ways we just accept ideas about gender, about roles, about women, um, and how we never step back far enough to look at them and acknowledge how screwed up they are. And I think if I had read that or had those conversations in my Mm -hmm. 20s, I would have started the work I'm doing now way earlier. I would have dealt a lot less with the BS that I just sort of accepted. I would have pushed back even more. And it might not have worked out for me because maybe... Yeah. Glennon's wife, Abby was just on my podcast and she called, I think she said trends and forces. When you look back at the decisions you made, you can cringe and say, I wish I had been different. Or you can acknowledge that the trends and forces in that time influenced a lot of your decision-making. And so I do think that if I had been, I think I played the game in a way that was never without integrity, but often was a little bit too, I guess I'm supposed to smile and laugh be like, mm-hmm. yeah, WNBA, nah, let's make fun of it. Right. Like that stuff versus 
um, had I been quite so uh, bold in my pushing back on that stuff, I, I might not have made it right. I would have been alienated by, by calling people out and, and stuff ahead of, uh, when, when the industry was ready. Um, so the advice I would give would be keep working so hard. They can't say no to you. Also Tina Fey is, I think it's Tina Fey, maybe Amy Poehler's got a great line. Never take a no from someone who can't give you a yes. Hmm. Meaning don't let anyone who has zero control over your job, your salary, your whatever, tell you that you don't belong somewhere or you can't do something. So like never mm-hmm. give any of the trolls space in your head. None of those people can hire you, fire you, give you a raise. Uh, so d- don't take a no from someone that can't give you a yes. And then I think I just would have given myself a little more encouragement. Like you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. This is, this is going to be easier in the coming years. The women's sports world is going to be more embraced women in this business are going to be more embraced, just like keep at it and keep being who you are and like, it'll work out. Do you think if we had this conversation in 2015, the answers would have been your answers would have been the same, or you think it just would have been the seven years of growth? It's growth. It's like you said, age. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah. I don't know if I would have had the same ability to have this type of deep conversation with you and know how to answer or question, pose the right right questions for you to set you up in a way that I could understand your path and, and where that voice, that, that tremendous voice comes from. Yeah. I think some of it would have been the same because it's, there's a pretty solid through line, even in, even despite trends and forces and even despite things. But I do think, you know, ESPN for 12 years is a long time. Um, having my own radio show for going on, I don't even know now, uh, you know, being validated in that way, being validated as dumb as it is with awards, being validated by other peers and fans, you know, no longer being questioned literally ever about like, Mm -hmm. you don't know your stuff. Now people can Mm -hmm. disagree with me. People can think my takes are bad, but like, I don't get those anymore of like, yeah. You just don't belong. Cause I've been around long enough that it's like falling on deaf ears at this point to argue that I don't deserve to be in the position I'm in. And then I think age, like, I hate to say this because, you know, we got some ballers like JLo holding it down for us in their fifties <laughs> that are like proving the age is just a number. You can be hot as hell, but I sometimes reflect back on, so I'm on the Gatorade women's sports advisory media board and sports advisory board. And, um, we were joking about this in a meeting. We were trying to figure out what it is about like 37 to 42. that mm, like this, yes, this for women. And I kind of joked that it was like that Amy Schumer sketch. I don't know if I can say this word. Hopefully you'll bleep it out. But that last fuckable day when <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that sketch, but they, she like wanders out into a meadow and it's like Julia Louis Dreyfus and a bunch of women celebrating Julia's last fuckable day. And they're going to like <laughs> send her out on a Viking raft and light it on fire. <laughs> and, and this, how Amy Schumer was so sad and they were like, no, it's so great. Like we have so much more freedom, you know, and I, I plan to be fuckable for a much longer time <laughs> and also remain unfuckwithable, which is my motto. Thank you, Eddie Vedder. <laughs> Eddie Vedder gave me that one, unfuckwithable. But I plan to be fuckable for longer. But I do think being married, being older, moving through spaces where, again, everyone is not looking at you like that. Yeah. When you're in your 20s and early 30s, 
regardless of whether it's intentional or not, regardless of what you're wearing or what you're doing, there is a treatment of young women that is extremely sexualized that even if you're keeping it hot at 40, it's still not the same, right? You're now in a different space. And I also think, I don't know about this scientifically, but it could be partly hormonal as well. We might be experiencing hormone changes that change our behaviors to other people and our influence Mm -hmm. and and with each other and everything else there is a a feeling too i think that once you've figured out your own stuff for women especially you start to look around and want to figure out everybody else's stuff i think Mm -hmm. once you figure out how to pay your bills and what am i going to do with my life and have i found a Mm -hmm. wife or a husband or am i going to have kids like then you stop and you go okay i'm looking around at the world and that needs fixing and that needs fixing and someone needs to help there and someone needs to step in there. So mm-hmm. I find that a lot of women around 35 and up start to really focus their powers and their efforts and work together. They've gotten past the point where they mm. buy the BS that every woman is fighting with the other women for a space. And they find in fact that partnering with other women and working with other women is incredibly powerful. And that comes back to what I was saying about untamed. I think if you earlier and younger start to get that internalized misogyny, that societal conditioning that has told you that women are less than or inferior or that feminism's bad or that you got to beat out that other woman for the job because there's only one spot at the table. All of that stuff, the earlier you can get that to go away and to acknowledge face on how much of that is BS that's created by a patriarchal society to keep power structures as they are, then you start just ignoring it And saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be an owner of a team. I'm going to partner with women instead of immediately believing that proximity to power means finding men to work with. I'm going to stop competing. I mean, you and I know this from the beginning. We would talk about this. I would say, I don't know why people are saying that women are fighting with each other. I have so many female friends in the business. We lift each other up. And the couple of times when I got a bad vibe from someone, kill them with kindness keep lifting them up. (laughs) I don't care if you're a bitch. I don't care if you're undercutting me behind publicly. I'm going to keep lifting you up when you do well, because I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to buy into that. And if I lose out a job because I'm not sniping someone or talking smack about them, because I'm not cutting out other women, then I, then the job wasn't meant for me. I didn't earn it. I need to earn the job. I can't use BS stuff like that to get it all that stuff. Like you have to process all of that when you're done processing that and you can stop wasting your time with all that BS that's been fed by someone else, then you can just get to work. I wish, I wish for myself, I would have been much more educated and knowledgeable and informed about all of the things that you just mentioned. I feel like I'm so many, many years behind and the generation behind us is so much more educated about this Mm -hmm. stuff. And oddly, you know, the, the aspect of going back to school, to graduate school and doing some of the doctoral training with counseling psychology, I had no idea this would be in any way part of it, but being a good therapist or psychologist, it's also being really aware of your biases and, and some of the things that get in the way and our preconceived notions of people, of things, of context. And so I've really had to like dive in deep and dig into all of this stuff and I'm still learning, but either way, you know, I, I, I so much, you know, applaud the work and the person that you have become and that you have evolved into, especially during our time, you know, on Spain and Prim. Of course, you and I go all the way back, maybe like 2011 or whatever it is. I now understand why you gave me this trophy (laughs) is because you knew you were going to get so many other trophies. So you're like, you know what? This small little Gracie award, I'm going to hand it off to Prim because there's so many more coming. No. Um, 
But Sassinator, thank you so much for coming on. Your story is awesome. Last question. Who is somebody, an athlete or non-athlete, that you think we, that would work really well on this show? I have a couple. Okay. So one, I think you'd find fascinating because of your work in psychology and everything is Kevin Brilliant, who I recently introduced you mm. to, formerly mm-hmm. of the Bulls, doing some new ventures now. But I've had him on my podcast twice. And his conversations about the intersection of human behavior and behavioral psychology with the sports world are fascinating. Like, why do we have lines the way we do? How does a team decide how many hats to put out so that there's enough options that you'll buy one, but not so many that you have, you know, choice paralysis. Why are things priced the way they are? If it's a subjective thing where you feel like you're treating yourself, then you use like a rounded up number versus like something that you pay for that you need. You use a straighten up. Like there's so many things that you never even recognize are happening every day that people are choosing to manipulate your brain because of science. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating to learn about them. Um, Angela Ruggiero is fascinating. Four-time Olympic hockey player, started the Sports Innovation Lab, released the first fan project and just released the second one. And her work on understanding fan behavior and what they're calling the fluid fan as we get into a space where more fans have to find what they want on streaming services, mm. on um, internet platforms, and how that translates to the potential pivot point and growth for women's sports. Super fascinating. She's just brilliant. She was on the Olympic committee, uh, just like one of those people that you're like, mm-hmm. how have you fit all this into one life? And how are you so smart and amazing? Amazing. So she would be, she would be a great one. Good stuff. I love it. All right, Sassinator. Appreciate you. I know you got about three other things going on today and you're going to be on the air till 12 o'clock tonight. So I love you. Thank you, you for coming too. on. Thanks and for having best me. Best of luck. We'll keep on watching you. Thanks, lady. As I said at the beginning of the interview, I love having these long form conversations with my peers and friends because it allows me to ask questions and engage in a dialogue in ways that I just wouldn't in a normal setting. And I think this interview was one that I wanted and also needed. When ESPN launched Spain and Prim in 2015, it was a really big deal for me. It was a big deal for somebody who had just 14 or 15 years prior set her sights on becoming a sports anchor, hopefully at ESPN one day. All this within the context of having undergone three operations to my shoulder and both knees during my junior year at Duke, knowing sport was eventually coming to an end. So I had identified my next chapter, my next purpose, sports broadcasting, knowing tennis was going to come to an end very soon. So seeing all of this come to fruition, seeing my name on that tile, knowing I was going to have my own show alongside Spain, knowing the historical significance of it being sports broadcasting's first ever all-female radio show was overwhelmingly exciting, but also terrifying. And then to see all of it collapse and the show get canceled just four to six months after they had just launched it was awful and a pride swallowing experience and one that we all had to experience publicly. Now at the time, I very much process it as rejection and failure. One of the biggest failures of my entire, not only career, but life. But many years later, I now realize why it didn't work out because it wasn't a good fit for me. And there were also other forces and trends as Spain characterizes them at play too within the landscape that were just out of my control. And looking back, I now realize why 
hosting that show felt so miserably uncomfortable to me. It wasn't just performance anxiety. Those nerves, I eventually realized later, much later, was a signal to me that that just wasn't a good fit. So what I'm hoping you take away from today's conversation is that ultimately everything falls into place and that people will inevitably land where they were meant to land and become what they were meant to become. And for me, it's continuing to be in sports broadcasting and media, but not necessarily in sports radio where debate and opinion within a highly structured template is important, which does not play up to my strengths or weaknesses. And I flourish in long form interviewing where I get to explore the intersection of sports and personal development in a much more flexible environment like the podcast format. And that plays into what I feel are my strengths and also my life purpose. I'm a firm believer that what we do and the careers we choose are an expression of who we are as people. And so an important aspect of that process is being honest with ourselves about who we are, but also who we are not. I could have easily continued on with my life thinking I was a complete failure after having watched our show collapse. And while it took me a long time, I chose a different perspective. I decided to, yes, accept responsibility for what happened, the canceling of the show. But I also decided to be honest with myself about what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are and how those weaknesses didn't allow me to shine in that space within that sports radio context. And when we can have that level of honesty with ourselves, it becomes a lot easier to let go of the things that don't matter and then focus on the goals and values of people that do matter. I hope you took away something from today's episode. I highly recommend following Spain on Twitter and social media because she's an awesome follow and she's got some amazing, insightful takes. And if you have any thoughts or comments for me or this episode, you can find me at Prim underscore Seripapat. The next chapter with Prim Seripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.